Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's me, Cindy. I host this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. No big deal or anything like that. But thanks to BGS for all of their continued support. If you would like to support this podcast, there's a couple different ways you can do it. You can make a financial contribution of at least $5 a month or $60 at one time, and you'll get access to our bonus content called Backstage. Make your contribution at basicfolk.com under the Donate button. At our website, you can also sign up for our monthly newsletter, and you can follow us on social media at basicfolkpod. Thank you. Mason Jennings. We're talking to a very special person today. He has the most interesting songwriting process I have come across. So since he was around 13 years old, the Minneapolis songwriter has had songs just come to him while randomly playing guitar and singing. He gets in touch with his subconscious and discovers his songs there very naturally. He also never writes the songs down. That's right. He commits each song to memory and only writes them down for liner notes. Born in Honolulu and raised in Pittsburgh, he chose Minneapolis to settle into his music career. There, he found lots of success and managed to avoid the ever-tempting major label record contracts, which were being offered as high as $1 million. Wanting to remain in control of his creativity, he opted to stay independent until he signed with Glacial Pace, a subsidiary of Sony's Epic Records headed by Isaac Brock of Modest Mouse. He released Bone Clouds in 2006 on that label and gained much acclaim. An album with Jack Johnson's label and an appearance on the soundtrack to Todd Haynes' Bob Dylan film I'm Not There solidified his presence in the folk mainstream. Fast forward to his latest album, Real Heart, co-produced by Pearl Jam guitarist Stone Gossard, is an ode to the acoustic guitar and a love letter to songwriting. Lately, Mason's been working on himself through therapy and self-reflection. In the last few years, he's been working on conquering and controlling depression, agoraphobia, and living a sober life. He's also gotten married again to Josie Jennings, and the couple just recently welcomed their son, Western, in March of 2022. A lot of these these themes appear on Real Heart. We dig into those as well as his painting, The Lake He Lives On, and Painted Shield, his synth-based rock and roll band with Stone Gossard and Matt Chamberlain. Mason's a very special person, and I'm grateful for this conversation. We'll take a listen to a track from his new album, Real Heart. This is the song On the Brink, and then we'll get to our conversation with Mason Jennings on Basic Folk. <laughs> Thank you. 
time I saw the writing I was halfway in the tank Watching as your Bentley Headed to the bank But you never got there, did you? Somewhere you got lost Living like a vampire Comes at quite a cost Where are you now? Where is your swag? Dealing with all this Has been such a drag There ain't no love Like a phony love There ain't no lie Like a holy lie We're only as strong As our weakest link When we're stranded here together Stranded here together On the brink Mason Jennings, thank you so much for talking. It's so great to have you on. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. We met like a long, long time ago in Pittsburgh. That's where I am now um, at WYUP. Uh, and we talked for like two minutes. And I was like a fan of your music already, but had never talked to you. And you left like quite the impression on me. So like every time somebody brings up your name, I'm like, Mason Jennings, he's a special person. Oh, thanks. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pumped for this conversation. And first I want to talk about Pittsburgh since that's where you spent a lot of your like formative years. You were born in Honolulu, raised in Pittsburgh, and I hear that your parents like randomly picked a town between your grandparents and Columbus and Philadelphia. So like you were here for some of your most important formative years. This is like kind of a quirky place, Pittsburgh. So how do you think this town helped shape your musical taste, and the type of musician you are. Wow. Um, lots of ways, I guess. The first thing that comes to my mind is just kind of that the weather and, like, the the hills. And there's just kind of an energy there that I think, especially as a teenager, really got inside my music. I mean, it's hard to know exactly how it got in there, but I don't know. I was going to say it's got, like, kind of a grunge quality to it, which is, like, I always mm-hmm. think, you know, Seattle is grunge, but, like, in my mind, Pittsburgh is, like, feels like that you know like I was really into Alice in Chains and things like that that when I was a teenager and it just felt really right in that in that place you know and then also I, that totally know. fits the aesthetic yeah I don't know I'm trying to think about other ways that I mean it's kind of it's a rough it's got a roughness to it that I love it, it, it's also like you said it's a really quirky, there's nowhere else like it it's not pretentious you know it's like everybody's just kind of there's a there's like a uh, earthiness to it that I like Right now we're in the middle of uh, Lenten season, so that means like lots of fish fries and, you know, getting your, you know, going to church basements or yeah. like the the volunteer fire department and getting your fi- fried fish and your halushki and yeah, it's definitely like a weird special place. So your family was also into music, uh, especially your brother Matt. You two were in punk bands together. And Matt is now an accomplished guitar player in the Minneapolis area. Uh, For you, what was it like to have a brother around you who is interested in music? And how has like that connection to music forged your adult relationship with him? It was hugely important. We have have an older half brother, too, named Taylor, and he he's the one that introduced us both to the guitar. Um, He moved in. He's my dad's my dad's son and he came in to live with us when he was 18 and I was 12 and my little brother was nine. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. He brought in like an electric guitar. His friends were coming over with their on their motorcycles and was, you know, he was introducing me to like 
Zeppelin and and um, the Allman Brothers and all kinds of like classic rock and so he kind of introduced us and then my little brother was kind of a prodigy at age nine like he started guitar and he was just could play anything and that's Matt right Matt yeah he could play you know from Bach to you know he loved like Dokken and all his 80s bands and, and just could play any anything so we were competitive not really in a negative way we were just you know I started out playing drums with him because he was such a good guitar player and I was like I'll, I'll figure out how to play drums and I'll support you and so we mm-hmm. immediately were trying to do that kind of thing and then slowly I just was like I can't I'm having trouble writing songs on the drums and I kind of just had this intuitive feeling that I wanted to write so I kind of sneak into his room and play his guitar a little bit and you know like I started writing songs like that and then he started writing songs because at first he was just you know playing heavy metal stuff like covers and stuff so then we were writing all the time and got into recording so I think that kind of like every day what did you write what did you come up with and playing each other our tapes and stuff really mm-hmm. influenced it a lot. We were, and we were both really um, supportive of each other, but also competitive. You know, like if it wasn't good, he would tell me right away where other people would be like, mm. that's cool. He'd be like, that sounded better this morning when I heard you playing that than what you just what you just finished. Stuff like that. Pe- stuff people don't tell you. Like he's like, you made that song worse by, the, by working on it too much. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Oh, wow. Oh, that's so crazy. His trajectory sounds really interesting. Like living in Mexico and China. Yeah. And back to Minneapolis and yeah. absorbing it all. He but. has five kids now. Wow, wow. He seems like a cool guy. Yeah, he is. Um, so speaking of your songwriting style, like this is wild to me that it sounds like your process has pretty much remained the same for you since you were about like 12 or 13 years old, where, um, let me know if this is right, you randomly are playing your guitar and singing along and you just like find songs and it seems to be like, a very natural process. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it's usually, I don't really usually know I'm writing. Like I, I often just be playing and then, because I play a lot of instrumental stuff around the house, but then sometimes I'll just start singing and then sometimes I'll hear stuff and then it'll just, it'll you know, if I have a, an hour or two hours, sometimes the song will just come in and sometimes it won't. So, but but it's, it's weird. It's a weird process. Mm. Usually, usually it's after it's done that I notice it's done. Oh, that's so crazy. Um, And it sounds like it's a lot about getting in touch with your subconscious and sort of like following that thread. So can you talk about what it's like to gain access to the subconscious and how your connection to the subconscious like has maybe changed over the years uh, and how that's like impacted you as as like your personality or, you know, you as a person? I think it's been hugely impactful because starting to do that at a young age, it was really comforting to get in touch with that because it, it felt like tapping into something that was much bigger than just like my, my ego or like something that was like, you know, me as like a 13 year old or 14 year old, it was like really big feeling and comforting and it felt kind of limitless. So, you know, as, as like going up, growing up when problems were happening in the home life and stuff, like I just felt like I could go there and it was like, there was just like a source coming Mm -hmm. through that was very comforting. And I think um, as far as how it's developed, I think even, you know, even recently I've gotten more confident in the fact that it's that I can trust it. And, you know, people like mm. my friends or my wife will tell me she's like, nobody has that connection. Like the 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 amount of information I can like get through the subconscious, even like stuff like um, synchronicity and stuff. I'll, I'll like think of someone I haven't thought of in, in years and then they'll like call me or something like I have that happen all the Whoa. time or I'll tell her I'm like, oh, I'm thinking about 
something and then it'll happen. Are you a shaman? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Or a soothsayer? I've thought about the word shaman because, you know, I've read a lot about shamans and they said a lot of times something happens when they're 12 and that kind of like rips open their reality often with shaman and then they see into something and then they're able to like help people navigate the, you know, what the what the world they see and then the world behind what they see. But I mean, and I guess when I was 12, like my dad left and my mom was in like a really deep depression and she was mentally ill and so all kinds of crazy mm. stuff was happening then that made me kind of go like something went, whoa, like I felt like I saw through something and and then the music started coming in then. So then sometimes I think that I'm like, is that is that similar to what happened to me? And then I've wanted to help other people. And I, I really feel an urge to kind of like help, you know, navigate this this the scene world and the unseen world to, to people. So maybe I don't I don't know. Oh, that's amazing. Um Another incredible thing that I read about is that you never write down anything after you write a song. And right. like you mentioned before, you're like, oh, the song is done. You know, it just like kind of happens. So you commit the song to memory and you only write it down when they want lyrics for the liner notes. Or now you have like handwritten lyrics for sale. And this seems like pretty unusual to not ever write any of your songs down. So how has that uh, affected your relationship to your songs? And where does this commitment, like committing things to memory, manifest in other areas of your life? I've thought about this a lot too, because yeah, it is really, it's really uncommon. Like I've talked to so many songwriters and they don't like, that's pretty rare. I've heard that like Jay-Z, the rapper doesn't write stuff down, but something happens when I see it like, like for instance, if I start hearing something and I grab a piece of paper and I start writing, I pull out of this, I come out of the subconscious and um, like a loop happens where I'm like, I'm like witnessing it or something. Like I, I pull out of the, the narrator becomes a witness in a way that's, it, it kind of stops the process. And so, yeah, I mean, to me, that's like, it's, re- it, it's actually like funny to talk about it because it's really important to not write it down to me. And then it was mm. kind of hard with, it was kind of hard with computers because computers came along. And before I would be recording music, it would be just on cassette tapes or reel-to-reel tapes, and I wasn't looking at anything. And now the computer recording, you, you, there's a visual aspect to it where you're like looking at the wave files and you're looking at stuff. And that's been kind of a battle for me to like not look at it too much. Can you get at remembering phone numbers? I can't remember anything weirdly. Like I can't, I can, I can't remember phone numbers. Like I, I try to remember my wife's phone number. Like once a week, I try to like look at it and try to remember it. I can't remember it. And then also I can't remember any story. The weird thing too is I can't remember story lines from books I've read. Like I um I read all the time and then people will be like, what was that book about? And I'll be like, I, I have no idea what, I, but I can remember the feeling from the book. So like I could, I could almost like, if you, if you told me about a book and it was like, what about that book? I could like sing to you the feeling of the book, but I wouldn't mm. remember anything about the story. No, it's strange, isn't it? Yeah. And then sometimes yeah. I'll think I go on stage and I'll think I have to sing for 90 minutes of like memorized, memorized things that aren't written down and I better get them right. But they, they just it works out usually. Uh, this is kind of like a sidebar. But have you ever thought of like kind of just like getting a tape machine, like an old Morant's tape recorder and just going back and recording that way so you're not distracted by the computer? Yeah, some, I did do that with cassettes for like my record always been I got a cassette recorder and did that. But I've been thinking about it more lately too. Yeah, I, I keep thinking. I'm just not. The, here's the issue with that, because <laughs> for like my record, Blood of Man, I, I tried to um, 
I got all this old reel-to-reel machines and I sat down in my studio and then day one, the machine, half the machine shut down and broke. And I, I'm like the opposite of a, you know, handyman or a tech. <laughs> so then I was just sitting in the woods with this broken machine from like 1985 or something. And I was like, I had to call somebody. They're like, we can come out next Wednesday. And I was like, that's eight days of music I'm losing right there. So oh, I, just, I just went with it. I just was like, well, I'm just going to do the computer for now. So. Or like start your phone and flip it over or something. Yeah, that works. I've been recently thinking a lot about like how to use my phone less. I like got out my old iPod from like 2009. <laughs> with the wheel? It's crazy trying to get old technology to like merge with new technology. You have to get all those like little doodads that connect it and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Just one because it's like the USB. I still have this old, you know, set of headphones. Oh, cool. That I threw in there. I've got like headphones everywhere. Nice. Actually. So like at any given time, I've got at least two sets of headphones. <laughs> I've got like seven within my reach right now. <laughs> Anyways, sorry. That's awesome. Um, so your instruments are guitar, piano, and drums. Um, I wanted to focus on the guitar. Um, your new album, Real Heart, your friend and producer, Stone Gossard, calls the album it's is it a love letter to the acoustic guitar or an ode to the acoustic guitar yeah and you call guitar your strongest instrument so how has your relationship to the guitar and also your feelings about your playing evolved well as a kid i was really i was really into like technical playing and soloing and and distort like i loved um jimmy page and so I was really into that and but then I would get on once I got on stage more like remembering really complicated guitar lines or playing stuff I would get really nervous and I would make mistakes and I I just felt like that wasn't really my you know like sometimes when you're doing the thing you love it just it just is very comfortable and it flows I mean you might be nervous but it just flows and when there's pressure situations you soar rather than like freak out and like make mistakes and I kept finding the guitar mm. was happening that was happening to me then when I was like, I don't know, 27, I, I was playing basketball and I broke my pinky real, like I, I broke my pinky, like the, the, the bone broke and pulled the ligament off too somehow. Oh, ouch. Yeah. Like, so m- moving my pinky got really hard. And then sometimes it would just go straight. Like when I'd be trying to play, it would just, it would just lock out. So I kind of developed a new, a uh, different kind of way of playing, which was like just more simple acoustic. I became more of like a supportive instrument. And then I really focused on the kind of minimalism and found that I really like like finger style guitar acoustic guitar playing and and um but then lately the for this record I was because the pandemic happened I had my guitars laying around and I put them in different tunings because I always played in standard tuning and then you know because I wasn't going anywhere for a while on tour I just like left my guitars in the weird tunings I didn't have to mess with and then that got me inspired to try some different stuff and I got kind of inspired about the guitar again like as its own you know not as just a supporting instrument but as its own instrumental instruments so i was listening to a lot of john fahey and um yeah like i love like nick drake's playing and elliot smith those nick drake Mm. and elliot smith are great guitar players and so uh and they play in strange tunings sometimes and yeah so lately i've been really liking just guitar instrumental stuff and we'll see where that heads like some of the songs on the new record like the song um second life was an instrumental originally and it was probably going to be an instrumental on the record until Right before the record, I started singing, like I was talking about earlier, like all of a sudden these words started coming out and then Second Life happened.
in your early days in Minneapolis, you were offered some pretty significant record deals. Um, I read as much as like a million dollars, but you turned it down and you said, I'm just against doing it now with the industry being what it is and where my career is. So later on, you signed with Glacial Pace, which is a subsidiary of Sony headed by Isaac from Modest Mouse, but you were like assured and convinced that you'd have control over your artistic output. So can you talk about where you land on that line between like wanting to be an artist and also wanting to be famous or financially lucrative and how that has changed for you over your career? When I first came to Minneapolis, the stuff that you're referencing was, you know, I was was pretty young. So I was like 19 when that stuff was happening. And I was in a I had a drummer who was connected to some people in the music business. So people were flying in and we were doing, um, we were doing like showcases for labels and I did not feel confident. Like I had a, like, I didn't feel like I had a sound yet. And my voice, I couldn't figure out like how to sing. I was singing, like, sometimes I would be like copying like lead belly or sometimes I would be like trying to sing like in a screamy way. Like I couldn't figure out how to be natural. And that's why Mm -hmm. I didn't do the deal then because I listened back to the demos and I was like, this is, this isn't a uh, authentic feeling to me. And it might be mm. qu- good quality. Like people liked it, but it was like the songwriting was there. Like I could write the song. There were some songs I wrote back then um, that I felt really good about, but the way I was singing and the way I was presenting myself, I, I was like, I'm going to get totally screwed because I'm going to present this record. And then two years later, I'm going to have a different way I want to sing. And then people are going to be like, we've already heard him. Why isn't he singing like that 19 year old? And so I decided to wait and kind of develop my own, keep developing until I felt like I could stand behind my my style, I guess. So that's what I did for those couple of years. Like, that's why I got for my first record. I got like a my own reel to reel four track and made the record myself because at that time, even even when I was making my first record, it was I was in a the people I were playing with were way more rock. Like the sound was way more um just just loud and rock. And I kept listening back to the tapes and being like, this doesn't quite feel like it's my thing. And then finally, when I got like songs like Butterfly or or like Dark Darkness Between the Fireflies, I was like, that sounds right to me. That seems sustainable. Mm. And then when I tried to shop that record, none of the labels were interested. Like I I sent it to like. 35 labels and they're like no thank like everyone was like we don't want this and so i just started selling it myself and we sold a lot which was cool like the people wanted it the labels didn't and then by the time i got to isaac oh that old story yeah exactly (laughs) so the time by the time i got to isaac brock he was just like you just make the record you'd make on your own and then i'll just go in there and tell the label that this is what we're going to put out so it was kind of like it was it was not a hard that was just like do you want some people to help promote it? And do you want some money to make it? And I was like, sure. And he's like, and I'll just buffer Mm. it. So that was pretty cool. But as far as like trying to wanting to be famous and stuff, like I want my music to get heard by more people. I would like that, but it's more important to me to like, to like the music I'm making. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that, sometimes those things line up and sometimes they don't. Mm. Isaac Brock, uh, you're the second person that I've interviewed recently where like Isaac Brock was kind of like operating in the background. The other person was Eric D. Johnson from Fruit Bats. Oh, cool. Like it seems like, yeah, it seems like Isaac did a lot for him. I think he got him, it, he got Sub Pop interested in Fruit Bats. Um, so that's cool. I didn't know. Mm. Yeah, Isaac's awesome. He's he's a, he's a he's a funny guy. Like he's one of those guys that's a, a real character, like a true, like he left a message, for instance, like he'll leave a message on my machine that goes, 
I sprained my ankle in my sleep. I'm like, how do you sprain your ankle in your sleep? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, hilarious. Another hilarious story. So you released a record on Jack Johnson's label. And I think I remember reading, I didn't prepare for this question, but I think I remember reading that like Jack Johnson saw your set from like side stage and then like acted like a total he he was like a fan he was like fanboying out to you and was like he definitely was like it was way too much like adoration to throw at one person but it was funny because yeah it was like in a field in in Minnesota we were playing at a college so I like I finished my set for like you know like a spring jam kind of like where all the kids come out to the main you know, like in the field and like you're playing. So I played my set and I'm walking off and there's this guy and I'm, I've never seen him before. And he's like, no, keep playing, keep playing. That was incredible. Keep playing. I'm like, man, I'm, is this who like are 2001? You? Yeah. I was like, who? yeah. So it was, it was kind of before the Jack Johnson takes over the world <laughs> yeah. moment. He's just like, keep going, keep, I'm like, who is this guy? Like, I'm like, I'm done. My set's, he's like, no, no, I like that. I'm like, who, what the hell? Like, and it was so funny because I was like, dude, I'm, I'm done playing. He's like, oh, I love that. I love that. And then like, Later, he went on stage, and then I was like, oh, that's weird, because at the time, I had, like, a buzz cut, and, and then I had, like, a trio that played really minimalist, kind of, like, and then he gets up there, and he's got a buzz cut with his little minim- minimalist trio, but he's got, like, a West Coast sound, and I was more, like, you know, I come from Pittsburgh and Minnesota, and and I was like, what is going, this is weird, it was almost like we kind of, like, mirrored each other, we were born, like, the same year, and I was born in Honolulu, and then we just became friends and went on tour together, so we went on tour together that year, like, co-headlining, but by the time we got to the West Coast, he was playing like 3,000 seat places and he was headlining. And I was like, what? I couldn't believe it. I was like, what's happening? You know, we started playing yeah. like 400 seaters. And then and then like I went back out with him. I don't know. Ten years later, and we were playing like 33,000, like 33,000 oh seat God. venues, like mind, mind bending amounts of people like getting in front of those crowds. You're just like he would like kind of sometimes be like we'd be talking on stage and he'd be giggling because he's like not giggling like uh funny giggling like this is a lot of energy to come at me like like ah like there's a lot of people looking at me right now (laughs) you know and I was like because he's such a just chill not you know he did not expect to be that famous um so that's it was kind of a trip the whole the whole playing songs and playing being on tour with him is a total trip in a good way people have really responded to you know to your music over your career I read this funny story from like your first album in 1997 so you had no idea it would sell so well so you put your home address on the record and then people started like sending you like tons of gifts poems letters as adoring fans so it kind of like seems like you make fans for life who like continue to buy your records your art come to your shows use your music at their weddings and important moments of their life so this maybe is a lame question but like do you have an understanding of like what draws people to your sound and how do you work to like lean into that when recording or writing while still kind of remaining true to whatever vision you have for that particular sound that's a good question i mean i have a feel i have a feeling like when i'm writing in a certain feeling where i kind of get i kind of feel moved that's the feeling I think people are looking for. So I definitely make sure that there's, you know, I'm I'm getting the feeling from my music that's, it's kind of like, a, you know, I listen to a lot of like Greg Brown and um, Paul Simon or uh, Lucinda Williams sometimes does it. 
it's like you're talking about the beginning with shamanistic stuff or like a counselor or just or just some kind of comforting presence inside the music there there can be like a and i don't even know if it's it's not necessarily me it's like the narrator of the song or, or like tone like something tonally can happen like in a greg brown song john prine it can be incredibly touching and comforting and like you can kind of like go to a place where you can see the the magnitude of like the human experience but then somehow kind of keep it manageable through the music like it's contained and i just think that experience holds a space for people to just feel connected i guess so i i guess that's what that's what i think i can feel it when i'm playing i'll I'll like get i'll be like writing something like like on the new record like a song like um like the demon or or real heart like there'll be a feeling i'm getting when i'm playing it and i'll be like oh this will this will this is the thing that i think can maybe help other people or connect other people or make other people feel connected so yeah there's a little bit of that for sure Mm. and then sometimes i'll be writing music that's totally not like that at all like and i'll be like you know people might like it okay but i'm not like i might put it on a record here and there but but i know what the core thing i'm looking for and probably what they're looking for is before you released your 2018 album songs from when we met sounds like you went through some shit your uh, yeah. first marriage ended recovering from depression and agoraphobia happier times you fell in love and got married again to Josie um, and it seems like it was a huge time of transition for you however many years or however many however long that was what are key lessons you took away from that time and still try to practice even now and it lasted past songs there's a really hard time for like a couple years past that when that record came out too but it's it's starting to open up a little bit now um the key lessons like one of the main ones i've learned is how to how to like when somebody says do unto others as you would do like do unto yourself you have to you have to take care of yourself too so like i didn't really understand that so i would always be Mm -hmm. like kind of open to to a fault and i didn't really believe that there would be people that would be just like wanting to use me so because i would just be like well i i wouldn't want to use somebody so i just never thought i just didn't like to think that the world would be that that energy would really be happening kind of i kind of tried to ignore that so um Mm. just understanding that like you have to take care of yourself you have to be able to set boundaries oh man ignoring stuff that works (laughs) i know right <laughs> Good learning, tip. <laughs> yeah, learning that denial is real. I've learned that because I was in denial and I didn't think I would be in denial. And then learning through a lot of work I've done that, yeah, I was in denial for good reason. Denial can be a protective thing. Um, you know, also, it's like uh, I learned that when you're working in music, you can dissociate and you can just think, I can just live in the music. But what I realized in the last, I don't know, six or seven years is that. Well, your body's on earth and while you're out in music land, people can do all kinds of stuff to like you can you're gonna get into a lot of trouble like with you can get in trouble financially, interpersonally, like you have to take care of your earthly stuff too. And I always just thought like, Oh, if I just do the music it's gonna all take care of itself and it's like not it it didn't and, you know, in one mm. in one respect it did, and in the other respect I ended up with a huge mess. So mm-hmm. um I guess that's what I learned is that I have to take care of myself. <laughs> in the physical plane as well as just and then the music is cool too but yeah a balance i guess if that if that answers your question I don't know. yeah totally and i want to come back to um some of what you're just talking about in a bit the agoraphobia uh which is the fear of places and basically like the fear of 
leaving your house or leaving a safe place. So now that you've worked to overcome it, if you have overcome it, you have been more comfortable on stage. So can you talk about what live performance has been like for you over your career? Uh, yeah, agoraphobia, like it's a fear of place. It's a, it's more, it's like kind of the feeling of being trapped. So like, I didn't know that until I actually got it because it would be like, if I'm in tra- traffic, for instance, I would just be like, well, what if I have to use the bathroom when I'm in the traffic or something? And then you start spiraling out. And so mm. for a musician, you know, you're on stage for 90 minutes and it's like from minute one, if you're like, what if I have to get out of here and I can't, I'm locked and all these people are looking at me. And then also like I'm in traffic, I'm in airplanes, I'm in lines at airplanes. Like it's just all these. So that was just a really challenging like mental gymnastics to be dealing with probably for 10 years. Um, but from the beginning of performing, I like, I like the performing part. Um, I used to like drink a lot before my performances, but then I stopped doing that probably in like, like maybe 99, 2000, because I was drinking so much. And then on stage one night, I just started laughing like crazy. Like it wasn't funny. I just started laughing uncontrollably. And then Mm. I was like, that's not good. So then I just, worked with somebody a therapist was like maybe don't drink before you play so then it it moved into a next phase which was just a very sober on stage and for the most part for the beginning of my career it, it was pretty pretty enjoyable like i like playing live i feel i feel good at it i feel like i can really tap into the feeling of the songs well i'm getting better at it but i used to not like talking on stage that would i'd be like singing and i'd be all confident and then i'd start to talk and i would be, i would just realize it was like a public speaking <laughs> event and mm. i would start to feel really nervous um but then i guess 15 years into my career i was working with my manager and he was you know we, we were having this issue where like a lot of these fans would come up and they would they would really lock on me and they would project on me in a way that you know like some weird stuff would happen with fans and and he was like why don't you just say what's ever on your mind on stage to break that something's happening where you're not talking and people are projecting and it's creating a weird a weird torque so then i just started saying whatever came to my mind and that got more comfortable and weirdly like then the fan the the not the fans but the weird intense fans started chilling out because they could see the humanity there and it really worked so wow yeah so now it's better i mean i haven't had the agoraphobia thing on stage and years so that's a huge relief i mean i like i don't it's not fun to be on stage totally having a panic attack for the whole show when you're trying to like act normal it's i'm i'm sure the shows were suffering but Mm. yeah i did the best i could and now it's i'm back to enjoying it the new album real heart you call it the unabashed folk record i've been wanting to make for years however you started out thinking that this was going to be more like electronic and beats focused and Stone Gossard suggested that you keep your guitar tracks on some demos, I think, that you had like planned on muting your acoustic guitar. So you kind of like went in a giant circle, you (laughs) went to electric and came back to a warm acoustic sound. So how did it feel to you when you realized that the songs were actually like taking shape as as folk songs and you like abandoned your electronic vision. Well, I felt honored that like Stone, cause I'm in this band with Stone called Painted Shield and I'm just the singer in that band. So he's doing all the guitars. So I felt kind of like the, the couple years before this record, I kind of felt like maybe I don't know how to play guitar, you know? But I was, and so, cause, cause I'm just doing the singing and sometimes I'd send him guitar tracks and then on Painted Shield, it would often get muted. So then when I was doing this record, I think it just kind of seeped in where I'm like, my guitar is probably crap. So I should probably just not, you know, I was intimidated. <laughs> and uh, 
so then when he said, let's keep the guitar, I was like, wow, that's that's pretty, that feels really good coming from Stone because I respect him so much. And then there's another step where then he started sending me the production, like, because he had some friends put, like, strings and um, some percussion and some cool bass on there and sent it back to me. And it was really folky sounding to me, like, and I got really nervous because I think I'm just there's some part of me that you know i grew up listening to rock and there's all i'm always kind of like i feel kind of insecure just letting it be really folky with like there's like a flute on one song you know i'm like oh it's a fucking flute oh sorry i swore there's a flute on one song it's fine. and um then after listening to it i was like I, I love the flute so i'm just gonna have to i'm gonna just be confident that if stone's confident with it and he's in this big rock band that i could just let my let it go let it be its folk the way it, I guess it wanted to be. So, you know, I kind of had to like Make turn a Jethro it over. Tull record. It's Make fine. a Jethro Tull, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you recorded uh, the album at your lake house. That sounds awesome. Uh, all glass windows. It's outside of St. Paul, Minnesota. You'll sometimes post pictures of the lake, which looks massive. I can't yeah. really tell because it's a lot of like fog and ice pictures, but... Um, from like pictures that I've seen, you have your artwork and Josie's art on the walls. It looks like very warm in there. Can you talk about your house and how you find it inspiring to your art? Yeah, it was it was definitely that time where I you know I just gotten separated or divorced from my um, ex wife, and I was really concerned about like all the stuff I was going through, and I'd heard this thing about intentions. This again, this is like subconscious and. Um, I had heard this thing that just write down what you want on a piece of paper. And, and I wrote down, like, I, I would like a place where I can feel private and secure. That's close enough to my, cause I have two sons. I'm like within, within uh, 15 minutes of where my sons live or their mom's house. And I want to be able to see really far and have it be water. And then like the next day, this place came up and we were the first people to look at it and moved in like they didn't even show this place so it's at the end of a peninsula and it's just this old this old modern house well modern and old but it's just glass it's just a little house stuck in the side of a hill on the end of a peninsula like looking out at mm. this giant lake and um wow. i was like oh whoa so i just felt when i got it and moved in here i just felt like something was help helping me you know being kind and you know giving me a space to heal and to be private like it's super private like there's no windows to the road it's just all out into the lake and um so yeah i just been able to record a bunch here and paint and it just feels like i've been here for five years now and yeah and josie's doing all kinds of amazing weavings and then we just had our first baby last week so then we're you know the, it's very much like a cozy little zone with a little baby and all the art and paintings and stuff so yeah it's it's cool i think we'll be here for a little while longer i don't know it's like i like to follow the you know like again it's the subconscious like i'll start to get kind of an image of like what i would like and then you can kind of just put it out there and hopefully the trail unfolds so on the record there are lots of like coming to terms with things reflected. Like you said, I've learned that it's okay to be my real self and that you've been working on acceptance and working to reject protective denial. We talked about a little bit. So basically yeah. like working to heal old familial wounds and end 
the generational dysfunction that's occurred in your family system, which occurs in like all of our family systems. Um, And that's very powerful to hear about. So being who you are and not who you think everyone else thinks you should be, that's really powerful. Um, What can you say about your journey with this healing in terms of like what exactly helped you and what part did the songs play in all this? Like, do you feel healed? Well, I'm definitely feeling a lot better. You know, I was was doing like some pretty intensive therapy for a while. And actually like yesterday, the therapist was like, I think you're good to go for if you want to check in in a month or two. And I was like, oh, I love that. Yeah, I surprised myself because, you know, I just had this baby and it was and then some other stuff was happening and she's just like you're you're able to walk through it in a way that's totally different new and I, so i feel like yeah it's it's to that next place you know I'm, I'm far more healed than i was two or three years ago um and what what helped um you know i've been going to different like recovery programs that have helped a lot and a lot of therapy like emdr i did that for a while that helped a lot um what is that it's like a it's this kind of therapy where you do this like you'd use pulses and they go back and forth in your in your hand like your hands or tapping and then it ta- you're able to like with a therapist like to go back into these memories from when you're young and feel them so that they get felt and then they can like the whole idea is like if you feel it you can heal it like it's the suppression of when things aren't getting felt when you're suppressing and trying not to feel that's when all these other addictions and problems happen so kind of the idea is in a safe way you go back and you feel these things that that you've like kind of put on a shelf psychically from your past and the way you do it is you access it through this tapping and it's pretty it's a pretty trippy process like and um so that really unlocks some stuff and allows some things to get felt and move through and then i think one of the biggest things for me is just being able to set boundaries you know like when i i didn't know that i could set boundaries in my life because i grew up with such a with such mental illness with my you know, my mom and, uh, just knowing that I can like trust myself, I guess, and be able to set boundaries has created a much different, just a much different day to day environment for me. Wow. Um, I want to ask about your relationship with your inner child. I'm going to read you this quote. You said, getting in touch with that wounded childlike part of myself that needs to be heard and healed and reparented to really listen to what my inner child has to say and to honor him and give him the unconditional love he never got. Because as I have learned the hard way, if I can't love myself, I can't love others. Um, So how have you changed your relationship with your inner child? Like what what is that like now and how has it made you a different person? I got um, turned on to this process that I didn't I didn't first of all I didn't even I'd never heard of like inner child work or anything um but then a few years ago I, I was introduced to it um through some therapy and then gr- joined some groups to work on it and so there's this non-dominant handwriting which I thought I was like what is that but there's this, this thing you can do where you can you ask a question with your dominant hand and then you can answer the question with your non-dominant hand on a piece of paper and that's they consider that like your inner child will answer also your like your true self or your divine child is what some people call it so mm-hmm. i was like what is this this is probably super woo woo and I, I was really like this is not going to work but then i started doing it and all this really clear information started coming out so i would do it like for like five minutes a day and i don't like I, we were talking about earlier i don't usually write things down i don't usually write anything so i would just ask like hello, little Mason, like, how are you, how are you today? And then answers would come out. And I'm like, what do you, what can I, you know, what do you want to tell me? And then all this stuff would come out. 
And then I would just consistently be like, I'm here for you. You're a priority to me. And it was like years of just very consistent, very, very consistent voice coming out of that non-dominant hand to the point where it was like, okay, maybe it's just my subconscious. Maybe it's really like some sort of like something else. But it was like so consistent that I was able to like work with it and just just support it, listen to it, validate it. Because, it, you know, as a child, that's the, those are the things that I didn't get. I didn't get validated. I did not have any kind of like sense of where reality was because when you're dealing with a mentally ill parent, reality goes, I mean, it's so confusing to have, mm-hmm. you know, you're, that's supposed to be your like true north. And when it's, it, when it's right. like really ha- struggling, it just becomes like a, you know, a real mess. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, for anybody you can just try it on people can just try like try the non ask yourself you're in a child a question with your right hand and then if you're right-handed and then answer with your left and some cool stuff happens like I, for me it was for it was pretty cool so that's where it started and then with therapy it i got a lot of support too that way too so oh that's cool um we were talking about this earlier of like people taking advantage of your uh basically your your trust and your openness so the song on the brink it's kind of a different song for you. Like mostly you're pretty optimistic in your songs, but on this one, you're basically like calling people out who claim to like be the real and only answer or just like calling people out on your shit, their shit, not yours. <laughs> on this song, you're encouraging people to find their own center. Um, and as a trusting and open-hearted person, you found it like a confusing landscape to navigate in you know whatever aspect of life we want to talk about, you know, you said I've had to wake up and learn better discernment. Um, That open and trusting part of yourself, though, it seems like a lovely part, you know, so how do you keep it and protect it from manipulation? Well, I use that one tool I was talking about, like I ask my I can ask like in that journaling process, like how my inner child is doing with certain things. And it's really clear, like sometimes it'll be like, get that person away from me. Or Oh, wow. Okay. I don't want anything to do with that. Like, don't exploit me don't send me out there like or i'll say things like how do you feel about doing this well i'll do this if i can if i don't have to you know if i could it it just like tells me in a way that's more easy for me to hear like what where i'm comfortable where i'm not rather than in the past i would just be like you have you have to give it all away you know you have to if somebody's asking you and they need something you have to just give it and now it's like this inner child will be like no like i'm i'm not doing i don't want to do that or um so stuff like that. Uh, is the idea that like the inner child doesn't have as much like, l- you know, layered shit that they're dealing with and they're just like open and pure and honest? Yeah, the idea is that it when you when you grow up in a situation where like for me, where my parents weren't capable of the kind of love you're supposed to get from a parent, the inner child like heads for the hills, like it stops developing. It like protects mm. itself by like the first thing it does is just get, get like go into hiding and then a false self gets created to protect it. So it's just kind of sitting there at that age, but you can go back in and it can grow, it can grow up like, cause it just kind of didn't grow up because it was not feeling safe. So like sometimes it happens with people like really young. Sometimes it's in a teen, a teen. So like, yeah, you're accessing, like, it's just a natural maturation process that in families that are dysfunctional, like really, and where there's mental illness or alcoholism there, it gets really arrested at a certain age. And, and so for me, it's like, I guess it's just a, it's a maturation process, I guess. It's like, I mean, there's not, it's not always going to be a little kid inside me. Like, I think it's even the last few years when we're doing this work, it's getting older. It's like, it's maturing and hopefully they're going to catch up with each other is what I'm hoping. Put your adult self on ice 
for a little yeah. bit. <laughs> yeah, the Walt Disney head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to talk about sobriety. Second Life is, you said it's partly about Josie and partly about sobriety, and you've been working on that for about 10 years. Uh, and I read you're four years sober at this point. So what advantages have you experienced because of remaining sober, and do you miss not being sober? Well, when I first got sober, like in 10 years ago, I definitely missed it every day. But then I went back out for a few years, and by the time I was done that time, I don't, I don't miss it at all anymore. Um, I think everything's better because of being so. For me, everything's better because I don't ever go to that. You know, there's a there's a thing. It's like the drinking is one thing, or the drugs is one thing. But like like the the during the day part when you're not drinking is it's like it's like a roller coaster, and there's just all kinds of other stuff that comes with it with anxiety or, uh, you know, living in that kind of like ex- in those extremes. But what I do struggle with sometimes now, because the next level of recovery is like, you know, drinking's pretty easy to see, but then there's these other things that are like drinking, like dissociation, where you like space out and you're always living in fantasy land or you're like living in sort of denial. Like those are things that are more compelling to me that I have to work on. Like I'll definitely have the impulse to be like, I'm just going to space out all day and like just just think I can live in the music. And that's a little harder. That's a little more compelling than drinking now. And so then I have to remember like it's a balance, like it's kind of like with drinking, you can just go sober, but as far as like living your life, you can't ever like, I'm never going to daydream. I'm never going to, you know, you can't, you have to like live in this Mm -hmm. life. So it's a little more, it's a little more complicated, but the sobriety thing. And then Josie's sober too. So like our house is like, I feel really supported. She's in recovery too. So we, we're both like, Hmm. um, get a lot of seltzer in your house. Yeah. A lot of LaCroix, (laughs) a lot of that Pellegrino. I was thinking about the different like mindsets you can have, like, spacing out or being like mindful and present and because I haven't drank in like a year just I was like I'm gonna do dry July and then I never stopped so like (laughs) there's like different phases that I found myself going through and I've been like thinking about like spacing out can be like you know everybody's so down on like not being present and you know daydreaming and stuff but I was like you know what it's like kind of enjoyable in here to like hang out for a little while but yeah I can to your point, like you can't live there. Right. But it is, it's, yeah. it's compelling. Like, and I have a family that more than drinking, you know, oftentimes what I found too is all, all this work I've been doing is, you know, a lot of times if you come from an alcoholic family, like the, if parents are alcoholics, sometimes the kids don't drink, but they become like, they call it dissociative. Like they'll just, they'll live in like fantasy land, you know, in their, in their fantasy books or, you know, just, and that's what my family was like growing up. It was like, nobody wanted to talk about reality. Everybody was like, what's, what are you working on with your music? It's all about the music, which is cool. But like, when you're like, there's the faucet that's broken and that we need to yeah. get groceries. And then people were just like talking about <laughs> books. So it's right. a balance. Um, this next question, I don't know if you'd be willing to talk about, um, Western, you and Josie just had a baby. Yeah. Like he's so fresh. He's a fresh <laughs> brand new human being, um, born on March 16th. If it's not too personal, would you mind sharing yours and Josie's journey to have this baby? Yeah, we, I mean, we got, we've been together five years and we were trying to have a baby within the first year. And then we had three losses, which was really hard. Mm. And then, um, you know, just kept hoping for it and, and got some help. And then, you know, it worked, which, and she's, Josie's 43. So it was kind of like, we're like, this is kind of the last year where it's, 
really feasible. I mean, you, I know you can have kids up yeah. until a lot later, but it, it worked out and he's healthy and yeah, he's so little still. He's, you know, he's at the point where his eyes aren't even, his eyes are still Aww. crossing and stuff, but he's great. You posted a picture of him the other day and he's like really, like he, he might be a week old, but he's very stylish. <laughs> yeah. That's Josie. She's like, can't wait. She's like, please, I can't wait to dress this guy. So. Oh yeah. Cool. Um, so you mentioned Painted Shields, your band with Stone Gossard and Matt Chamberlain, and also the keyboardist singer Brittany Davis that started in 2014. It's a synth-based supergroup right up your alley. <laughs> um, debut album came out in 2020. There is a new album out very soon. Um, I, this is being released on uh, April 14th, so it's coming out next week on April 22nd, the album Painted Shield 2. The sound is digital, bombastic, driving. You write the songs and sing in this band. Brittany also sings. How important has this band been to like your mental health, your confidence, since it's like so different than your solo work? How has it impacted you and, and your own music? Uh, it's been huge, actually. Like, Because um, Stone and I started doing stuff a long time ago, but it's been the last three or four years that we've really been working on this stuff. And it's just working with Stone closely on songs and getting to like hear his process. And then when we, Matt Chamberlain joined the band and then Brittany Davis too, like the level of the musicianship is so, it's pretty intimidating actually. It's really like, it definitely made me have to think about myself as a singer. You know, I just feel like I had to raise the bar. So I think my singing's got a lot better the last two or three years. I think that I'm really conscious about how recordings work because it's for me like when I was making my own records I was always just like I'm going to play most of the instruments myself and I'm going to I was just wearing a lot of hats like I was trying to do a lot of things and then this I'm just like the melody the vocal performance and that it made me really learn how to collaborate learn how to trust other people um, it allowed me to like let Stone help me with the production of my own record too because mm. I, we built a rapport where I don't think I would have done that before because I usually have a lot I used to have more control issues and now I'm starting to learn how to like trust, mm. trust certain people more. Like we were talking about, like have some discernment about who's safe and who's not. And uh, yeah, I'm really, this new record's really cool too, because there's about three songs on there that were kind of like repurp. They're, they're my, versions of my songs from like maybe 20 years ago. There's a song called uh, bird's nest that used to be called freedom. And that was going to be on my second record. And we kind of like reinv I, I, I kind of went back and I was like, you know what, this could be really cool with this level of musicianship. Like it never, it just never had the right band. And this other song that's coming out called, uh, till God turns the lights on. It was a song of mine called easier mind that was going to be on my debut record, but it never it didn't have the right groove to it. And then we got like, finally got this cool, like the groove is deep enough that I was like, I tried to, I brought it back. So there's, and there's a song called White that never got released that was going to be also on my second record. So we re repurposed that one. So on this new Painted Shield 2, there's like some there's some old remnants of some of my old songs being put into this new context, which is it's pretty exciting That's for me. That's cool. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, I have a few questions for you for the lightning round. Okay. Okay. You ready? Here we go. What is your karaoke song? I've only done it once and it was Hotel California. Perfect. Dogs or cats or something else? Dogs. What is your coffee order? I like pretty dark roast black. Nice. First celebrity crush? Alyssa Milano. Ooh. But I was really young. I just wrote the word Alyssa and put it on a paper on my wall. That's so cute. That's a good one. On Who's the Boss, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Well, Eddie Vedder was really nice. Stone Gossard, those guys. Can't beat that. Uh, flying or invisibility? <laughs> That's fun. Um, <laughs> invisibility. Here's the last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Tasmania was pretty beautiful. Hobart, Tasmania. Oh, nice. Great. That's it. That's the lightning round. Oh, cool. You've Did done I do it. all right? Congrats. Yes. You have won my lifetime adoration. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking so much time and talking. It was like really special to do an interview with you and I hope to see you in person soon. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for being, you know, having such great questions and being so nice to talk to. I appreciate it. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. You can find Basic Folk on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Wherever you get podcasts, you can also find us on the SiriusXM app. Search Basic Folk and at basicfolk.com. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. We like you so much. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.